didn't know it, but we were starting a series back then called The Church. Um, and uh, so for the next five weeks, we're actually going to be diving into the church. And I gave you a bunch of points that first week. If you kept your notes or studied them, which I'm sure you all did, uh, you'll, uh, you'll find our, uh, where we're going for the next few weeks here uh, as we continue through the month of July. Um, but the reality is, is that most people in this room would probably agree with me when we talk about the importance of the Bible, the importance of Scripture uh, to the life of a Christian, to the life of someone who would call Christ their Savior. It's an incredibly important book. I think all of us can probably find common ground there. There's a story uh, about a young girl who was blind. And uh, she got the opportunity, and I actually had a, a person who was blind uh, in my youth group, and uh, they would bring their entire New Testament written in Braille. Um, and you guys know, I mean, this, this is a thick book, but then you do it with Braille, and literally his mom, depending on the book that we were in, would bring books stacked from here to the floor, and that wasn't even the, like the entire series that they had. And so uh, Braille Bibles are, are expensive, and they're burdensome, and they're huge. Well, this girl um, who was blind got the opportunity. Somebody gave her the Gospel of John in Braille, and she had never been able to read the Bible on her own before. People had read it to her. She had listened to it, that sort of thing. But she got the opportunity to actually read the Word of God for the first time. And so she's reading through it, and she's skimming through it with her fingers and reading the words of God, and she's ecstatic about it. So much so that, that she continues to read it for hours a day. She couldn't get enough of the Word of God until she was reading it so much in the Braille that she developed calluses on her fingers. And she was devastated because she lost the sensitivity and the ability to read the scriptures. And so someone who had poured over the scriptures for hours and hours and hours a day, so excited to be able to finally read the word of God, was going to have to say goodbye to being able to read the gospel. And so she was obviously emotional about it. She bent, she bent down, knelt down, and kissed the first page of the book of John. And at that moment, she felt the braille on her lips even more sensitive than her fingertips and was then able to read the gospel with her lips. And we're all like, man, that's incredible. That is such a cool story. It makes us feel good. We're like, man, the, 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 the veracity which with she read the scriptures is so good. And I don't tell you that to make you all feel bad about how little you're reading your Bible in comparison to her. I don't know if any of us have gotten blurry eyes from reading the Bible so long. Um, but I tell you that because there is power in this book. There is strength in the Bible. The Bible is more than a novel. And I would bet that most of us in here would nod our heads in agreement. But most of us don't know why. Why is the Bible so transformative? We know we're supposed to read it, and it's going to change our entire lives. We come here every single week, and we think, you know what? The pastor's right. He told us to read our Bible again this week. Maybe I should think about doing that. And we don't know why. Like, like honestly, we sit in this room, and we, and we think, what, like, what is it about it that, that this Bible is supposed to change our entire, entire lives? I mean, there's wisdom. There's poetry. There's history. There's direction. It even tells us what's going to happen when the world fades away. If I were a door-to-door -door traveling salesman, and I came, in, uh, came up to your door, knocked on the door, and said, look, 
I've got a book. It's going to cost you 20 bucks. It'll change your entire life. If you do what it says and you believe it, you'll have eternal life. And not only that, it tells you the future. You would jump on it. You would hand me 20 bucks so fast. You'd be like, absolutely. Yeah, here's 20 bucks. I'll do whatever it says to get all of those things in my life. And the reality is, is all of us have those collecting dust on our bookshelves or collecting dust on our coffee table. We have the ability to read this book, to read the divine revelation of God, the special revelation of God, and we simply are allowing it to get dusty. Most of us don't even open it because we don't get it. We don't understand it. It's a little burdensome. We think it's a lot of old stories written away that we can't understand. Today we're going to look at what the Bible is. We're going to break it down to make sure that the Word of God is completely accessible to us. I want you to know exactly what it is. And we can walk away from here not only knowing more, but we would be able to demystify the entire thing for those, peoples in, for those people in our lives who are yet to know Jesus. Because oftentimes today, in today's culture, this is a burden. Scripture is seen as a roadblock to people who don't yet know Jesus for all of the reasons that I stated before. We need to demystify it. it gets, I don't understand it, all of those things. So, we, the, so we're going we're gonna to go to, as one of my favorite pastors, his name is Pastor Ricky Jenkins, as he says, we're going to go to school for a little bit. We're going to go into the classroom for a little bit. And then we're going to go to church, okay? And so the classroom, we're going to learn a little bit about this, and we're going to figure out exactly how we're going to apply it to our lives, and we're going to land the plane, okay? So the first thing you need to know about the Bible is that the Bible is inspired. The Bible is inspired. Inspiration is a, uh, it's a theological word that means that the Bible wasn't merely written by guys who observed things and thought it would be interesting, and hopefully one day they were going to throw it into this, like, complete set and as we got the complete set, it was going to ultimately, everybody's going to read it, it's going to change the world. That's not what the Bible is. The theological term that often goes along with the idea of inspiration is a beefy one. You really want, you want to impress your friends this week, talk about the inspiration of God, then you would talk about the fact that, that I believe in the verbal plenary view of Scripture. Verbal plenary means verbal, talking about words, plenary, every. So every word of the Bible is inspired by God. Verbal plenary. The Holy Spirit used the culture, personalities, backgrounds, and other biases of the individuals, but ultimately every word written was inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that. It tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed. That's a, it's a difficult thing for us to understand, right? Because we know that, that men wrote down the Bible, and we also don't believe that God just like put them in a trance and then they woke up and all of a sudden they had written books of the Bible. Right? We understand that these people were inspired by God. And we know that individuals wrote them because you can, you can tell different stylistic differences from book to book. And if we were to read the difference in the original Greek of Paul's writings versus, uh, versus Peter's writings, Paul, who was a scholar, incredibly polished, very learned man, and then compared to the apostle of Peter, you can see that stylistically they're on opposite ends of the literary spectrum. Peter's is incredibly plain, 
easy to grasp, probably a little bit more fisherman street language, if you will. Paul's a little bit more polished, educated in the style in which he writes. And there's tons of variation in style, uh, many variations of the use of language from author to author. Distinct personalities are clearly obvious. Emotional attitudes come pouring through the writers as they write. God used writers who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were moved along by the Holy Spirit. They weren't out of the process. They were in the middle of the process. They were included in the very act of writing is how it came to be. In fact, uh, they were writing their own heart attitudes, their own thoughts, their own insights, their own experiences, their own understanding under the total control of God. And I know you're like, that doesn't make sense. That's okay. But know that God inspired every single word of scripture. Scripture, What they write down is the exact and authentic words that constitute the message that God wanted written down. And when the word of God, the exact revelation of God is written down perfectly, what we should have is a document that has some weight to it, a little beefiness to it, right? So what we have then, the next thing we need to know is that the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. 2 Timothy 3.16, we'll reread that and go into 17. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Any parents in the room? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Parents in the room? I'm a parent. <laughs> that wasn't a joke. I'm, I'm a parent. Um, I grew up with phenomenal parents. They were great. They, uh, they encouraged me. They let me uh, figure out exactly kind of my own path in life. They let me blaze my own trail. I was a younger brother. Any younger siblings in the room? Yeah, we all have that complex. It's okay. You're important too, I promise. Um, but uh, my parents were incredibly, incredibly just, just great parents. And I distinctly remember one time my dad had, had told me, had, had used a phrase with me that wasn't characteristic of my dad. Right? It was one of those instances where I think I was like 10 or 11 years old and I just decided that I was going to say why about everything. You parents know that conversation, right? Um, it goes something like, we're going to go to grandma's. Why? Because we love her. Why? Because she cares about us. Why? And then you're like, at this point, I don't know why she cares about you anymore because you're being... <laughs> Really frustrating right now, kid, right? So it was a conversation kind of <laughs> like that. It was one of those things, one of those conversations with my dad. Um, and eventually he got to a point where he just said, because I what? Yeah. Right. So you guys are familiar with that term. Okay. <laughs> because I said so. And this isn't usually like when you use this term, this isn't usually like your highlight of your parenting career, Right. You're like, I don't have any more excuses. I have nothing else to tell you. Like, I'm uh, uh, honestly, why? Because I'm exhausted. That's why, okay? You want to know why I'm telling you no? I'm too tired to peel my body off this couch, okay? That's why. And then you say, why? And then you get back into it again, right? But uh, it, there, there, I remember my dad saying that and me thinking to myself, okay, I should, I should probably stop. <laughs> I should probably stop asking why at this point. 
because my dad is an authority figure in my life. And I was pushing the boundary and pushing the boundary and pushing the boundary. And eventually my dad was like, you know what? Because I said so is why. Now, I wouldn't say that's a great parenting tactic. Will it get the message across? Yeah, it will. But I wouldn't say, like I said, that's the highlight of parenting. But when we look at this idea of Scripture and, and Scripture having authority over our lives, sometimes we have to reserve ourselves to say, because, or to listen to what God is saying when he says, because I said so. And so, especially in a time and in a culture where ultimately there are a whole lot of people who disagree what the Word of God says, disagree with what the Word of God says, who we've, we've taken Christianity and Scripture and we have turned it into what we feel like is right. We have mutated it to a point where it feels a little bit like we, we say things like, well, what would Jesus do rather than what did Jesus say? And what does the Bible say? What was written in this authoritative book? A view of the Bible that affirms its divine inspiration and total truthfulness is of little value to us if it's not accompanied by an enthusiastic and enthusiastic commitment to the Bible's complete and absolute authority. So you can agree this is the inspired word of God all you want, but unless you begin to submit yourself to its authority, ultimately it's not going to carry weight in your life. You have to recognize that the Bible is also authoritative. An approach to this subject of, of biblical authority has to begin with God himself. God is his own authority. There is nothing outside of God. There is nothing outside of him on which his authority is established. God is God. And so when God has given us his word, we need to recognize that that authority comes from God who has no authority above him. So our ultimate authority is what? His word. God's word. All authority on earth and in heaven comes from God alone. So if the Bible is truly God's inspired word, not only does it have to have authority, it has to be authoritative for all of those people who believe, but it also has to be inerrant. And that's your third fill in the blank. The Bible is inerrant. Psalm 119, 160, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. All your laws are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. When we talk about inerrancy, we have, we're referring back to the original writings of Scripture. These would be called the original autographs is the theological term here. Okay, The original autographs of Scripture. We don't have any of the original autographs anymore, by the way. They're gone. Um, and that tends to be a hang-up, and we'll get to that in a second when we get to our next point. We'll get to that in just a second. Um, we only have copies, including copies and copies of each book. But inerrancy doesn't mean everything in the Bible is true, though. Some of you just freaked out a little bit. Hear me. Okay? Inerrancy doesn't mean everything in the Bible is true. We have uh, records of men lying, right? So that's not true. Right? They, there's lies written in Scripture because it's a recording of, of those lies. We have recordings of the words of the devil himself in Scripture. And we all know that he's a deceiver, the great deceiver. And so because of that, those things aren't true. But they're a, a recording of those things. We can ensure that these are accurate records of what actually took place. Inerrancy doesn't mean that apparent contradictions aren't in the text. I want to be upfront with you. There's a lot of people who are like, wait, there's a discrepancy here and there's a discrepancy here. What, what is it? 
Um, at times, different words may be used in recounting what appears to be the same incident. For example, uh, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 refers to John the Baptist carrying the disciples or the, the sandals of the Messiah. Whereas John 1.27 refers to him untying those same sandals. Right? So there's apparent contradictions. John preached over a long period of time, though. He told lots of different stories, and he would repeat himself like any preacher. He would use different ways of expressing the same thing. If we were to press pause and reset this service, I would not say verbatim the things that I said prior. Would the heart be there? Absolutely. Would I communicate the same thing? Yeah. But the words that I used would not be verbatim. So there's apparent discrepancies that we could find in the text. Inerrancy, it's another difficult one to understand. And the phrasing that's often used, uh, that the Bible is true, that, that inerrancy is all, it's true in all that it affirms, would be the theological kind of way to say that. The Bible is true in all that it affirms. And so it's not written to be a science book, right? It's not written, like you can't open this and figure out common core. It's not going to happen. Also, you can't open most math books and figure out common core. It's not going to happen. <laughs> sorry, teachers. Not that sorry, though. We just saw incredible. You like, you can't change math. So good. <laughs> math is math. <laughs> so inerrancy, though, it's true in all that affirms. So here's a good example for you, okay? Let's pretend for a second that my, my house, the directions to our new house uh, are in are in the Bible. They're written in Scripture, okay? And so I told you, our new house, that, for those of you curious, we're, we're an escrow on a property. We'll close in the middle of July. Um, but uh, our new house is five miles from the church, which is true. It's five miles from the church. And I told you that here, and you're like, okay, about five miles from the church. It's great, five miles. And then you decided that as a welcome gift, you really wanted to bake me fresh chocolate chip cookies. Just saying, if you wanted to do that. <laughs> and... <laughs> You drove to my house, and you looked at your odometer, and you were like, Peter just lied. It's 5.4 miles to his house. He lied to everybody. Is that a lie? No, it's not a lie. My house is five miles from here, but your odometer says 5.4, so what's the accepted cultural distance from here to there? You could say five miles, and you're like, okay. But then you decide, oh, no, I forgot something back at the church, and I also forgot how to get there. And so I'm going to enter on Google Maps to see, to see directions back to the church from Peter's house. And then Google Maps tells you that it's 5.42 miles to get there. So now your car is lying to you, too. Like Pastor Peter lied to you. Your car is lying to you. And now technology says you're 5.42 miles, but it's measuring out to the street. And it's like 5.42 miles to the street, but, but I'm going to the office. So that's like 5.44 miles. <laughs> and so this, it's this idea, the Bible tells us things. The Bible has truths in it that would have been acceptable ways to understand and to, and to communicate things that were happening that isn't going to be a scientific fact. But are they true? Absolutely they are. So that's the idea of inerrancy is it's truthful in all that it, is, that, that, uh, that it affirms. But what is important to realize is that the Bible and the things that it affirms, it's indeed truthful. Um, it, it's going to tell us, that it, it's not going to tell us the molecular, compare, like the, the molecular, molecular, hard word, makeup of a cell. 
It's not going to, like I said, teach us long division. It's not going to tell us every single battle that happened in history. It's not going to tell us where you should put a comma, where you should put a period, and where you should put a semicolon. But the things that it does communicate to us are indeed truthful. But if all this is true only of the original autographs, and we don't have any of the original autographs, how can we trust the Bibles that we have in our hands that are sitting next to us right now or they're sitting on our phones right now? How can we trust those things? Great question. I think our next point would have to be then that your Bible is preserved. Your Bible is preserved. The doctrine of preservation in regard to Scripture means that God has kept his word intact as to its original meaning. As to its original meaning. Preservation simply means that we can trust the Scriptures because God has sovereignly overseen the process of preserving the Bible over the centuries. The early scribes, their jobs were to make exact copies of Scripture. We're incredibly meticulous. Borderline anal retentive. That's how committed they were to these things. One example of their precision is the practice of counting all the letters in a given book and then noting the middle letter of that book. They would then do the same thing for the copy to make sure it matched. These things were incredibly time-consuming and painstaking methods to ensure accuracy. We could take note of the following verses that demonstrate God's plan to preserve his word. Matthew 5, 18, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In this verse, Jesus declared that not even the smallest stroke of a letter in the Hebrew alphabet would pass away until everything written is accomplished. The word of the, God, the, word of the Lord will stand forever. Israel's reverence towards the word spurred them to create a copying system to preserve the Old Testament. It's, it's actually pretty incredible. Um, they, they understood it would be very easy to make copying mistakes. And so what they decided to do is they solved the problem of human errors creeping into the text by creating a set of rules. Now, if you're a person who digs like, like uh, church history and that sort of thing, am I doing something? So just, you guys good? I'm just going to keep going. Um, but they, they, they put a set of rules in place in the Old Testament to, as they copied down the Old Testament. Here's a few of them, okay? They could only use clean animal skins as a rule. They could only use clean animal skins both to write on and even to bind the manuscripts. They had to be meticulously cleaned. Each column of writing could have no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. The ink must be black and of a special recipe, so it had to be a specific type of ink, okay? No ballpoint pens allowed. They must verbalize each word aloud while they're writing them. They must wipe the pen and wash their entire bodies before writing the word Jehovah every time they wrote it. Yeah, I know. You guys are like, that's exhausting. <laughs> Some of the young, young parents are here. It's like, I get like a shower every four days. <laughs> every time I write the word Jehovah, that's crazy. Um, but every time they wrote it, there must be a review within 30 days. And if it has as many three pages required corrections, okay, three pages of correction, three corrections on three pages, um, the entire manuscript was burned and then redone. 
Could you imagine? I would be furious. Like, I get mad when I handwrite, like, a half page something and I have to re-handwrite it. Like, I'm like, where, why didn't I type that on a computer and just press backspace and fix it? Can you imagine the entire manuscript burned and redone? The letters, words, and paragraphs had to be counted, and the document became invalid if two letters touched each other. The middle paragraph, word, and letter had to correspond to those in the original document. If while copying the scrolls there was an error, it was burned, and they started over. But if they took such good care of the manuscripts, why don't we have any of the originals today? Why don't we have them? Great question. After Jerusalem was sacked by Rome in the first century, the process was lost. It was gone. And while a Hebrew version of the Old Testament continued to exist, the language wasn't spoken by many. So Greek and eventually Latin versions continued to be copied over and over and over again. Until eventually we had the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls that corresponded some documents from a couple hundred years prior to our documents today in the the mid-1900s that said, man, there was barely any error there and the errors were purely scribal. So what? What does this mean? What does this mean for us today in 2018? Because, okay, uh, I'm supposed to trust my Bible. It's supposed to be authoritative. It's an inspired word of God. It's all these things that you told me. I agree with those. Great. Well, in 2018, the other thing that we need to recognize is your Bible is transformative. Your Bible is transformative. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. And, if it, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no other book in all of existence that holds the power to transform a person in the same way that this book, this book does. The key to understanding this transformational power is to grasp that the Bible is the word of God and not just a collection of inspired writings that were penned by great philosophers. The Bible is distinct from every other manuscript in history and that it is indeed the word and authority of God to man. The writings of man may be able to amuse, educate, enlighten in some ways, but the word of God actually has the ability to change lives forever. The Bible presents the words that have emanated from the mind and from the heart of the creator. These words carry a power that's unparalleled by any other written work. When a person opens his heart to reading, learning, and studying the scriptures, he'll begin to see himself in God like never before. He'll be, understand, be able to understand his true condition, sinful before a holy God. And the gift of forgiveness through the finished work of Christ on the cross, he'll begin to grasp the power of the Holy Spirit that will enable him to turn from his sin and enjoy a life of great joy, a life of great fulfillment. He'll see a miraculous change begin to take place in his life as he goes deeper into the word of God over time. Transformational. God's revealed himself to us in his word. And without the Bible, there is no way for man to completely understand his fallen nature or his path back to righteousness. There's two types of revelation. God has revealed himself in a general way, and God has revealed himself in a special way, okay? God's general revelation, walk outside, look at creation, and you can't help. Romans 1, 20 and 21 talks about this. You can't help but know that someone created it, right? Anybody been to Yosemite? Anybody been to the end of Tunnel View? And you look at Tunnel View at the end right there, and there's like, if you ignore the thousand people that are also there with you, and you're looking 
down Yosemite Valley and you see the stately half dome in the distance and you see El Capitan, the largest single piece, the largest single rock in the entire world to your left. And you see three brothers on your right and right in front of that, there's bridal veil careening down. And you think to yourself, how can anybody walk out here and not recognize that there is a creator here? That's God's general revelation. You know what God's general revelation falls short of? It falls short of instruction for salvation. If the Bible wasn't here, if God did not reveal himself, if these weren't God's special revelation to us, to us ultimately, we, sh- we fall short of our ability to know about salvation. Because all we think is, man, something created this. That's pretty neat. And you move on. God has revealed himself in a special way for us to be able to get back to him. The Capital C Church, not just F.B. Hanford, but the Capital C Church has done a great job at learning and studying God's Word. Millions and millions of people have written about it. They've prayed over it, have carried it to church, have preached from it. But ultimately, we haven't always done a great job at simply talking about it when people who, with people who don't yet know about it. You know people who don't know Jesus. I know people who don't know Jesus. He knows people who's bringing my microphone and calling a timeout who don't know Jesus. (laughs) Check. All right. Thank you. We're closer now. Now I have a tail. <laughs> I'm scared to talk. Okay. At least I wasn't landing the plane. So, you know people who don't know Jesus. You're responsible for them knowing Jesus. And you can't do it apart from Christ and his word. You can't do it. I was at a funeral yesterday for my uncle, and we'll, we'll end with this. I was at a funeral yesterday for my uncle. Uh, he's an incredibly joyful guy because he knew who Jesus was. Uh, he wasn't the, the most intelligent guy in the world. Uh, he wasn't the most well-spoken guy in the world. But he knew who Jesus was and how important it was to let other people know about him as well. You know what my Uncle David did? He prayed for them. And he read his Bible and he knew God's word, and he bought people candy bars. He was on the prayer ministry at his church, and he would bring candy bars for people to just hand out and just say, you know what? Man, that is so great that you had a prayer answered. You want a Butterfinger? I mean, who's going to say no to that, right? Absolutely. I'd make up answered prayers to get those things. Um, <laughs> But his heart for people who didn't know Jesus started when he became aware of man's sinful, sinful condition and the paved path to Christ that had been laid out for us in Scripture. David, like most of us, will be forgotten by the masses. History will forget most of us. He wasn't the Apostle Paul or Billy Graham or C.S. Lewis. He was none of those famous guys. He simply took God's word seriously. 
It transformed his life. It transformed who he was. And he recognized that if this book, if the special revelation of Christ was what it said it is, is what it said it is, that it needed to carry an authority in his life that caused him to act. Imagine what it would look like if the body of Christ took God's word seriously, if we actually considered his word as truth, if we actually considered the Bible as authoritative in our lives. We'd have conversations about Jesus with people every day because the fear and trepidation that we have regarding upsetting the status quo of our relationships would be upstaged by the fact that we have a truth that we need other people to know about. That people are going to hell. And you have an answer. We have an answer. We simply have to decide to share it. We simply have to decide to distribute that. I mean, can you imagine if someone currently had the cure for cancer and they kept it to themselves because they were worried they might upset somebody? Are you kidding me right now? And how much more important is our eternal life than, than our physical bodies here on earth? And we forget about the fact that there is authority in God's word. The only way for us to become that passionate about Christ and what he did on our behalf is to know that his word is to know his word and simply state, and this is your last blank, we can't be the church without knowing God's word. We cannot be the church without knowing God's word. So this week, pick up your Bible again and fall in love with scripture. That's your challenge. Whoa, big challenge for your first week, Peter. <laughs> Read your Bible. That's where it starts. It's not with going and grabbing coffee with somebody. That's later. It's not with talking to somebody about, about Jesus. That's later. Tomorrow morning, set your alarm, get out of bed, and fall in love with Jesus again by reading his word that had been revealed to us, that has been revealed to us, and then obey it. Matthew 28, 19, we'll finish with this. And you know it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say, therefore, stay and only read Scripture until someone asks you about it. It says, therefore, go. So fall in love with Scripture and then obey it. Fall in love with Scripture and then obey it. Fall in love with Scripture and then obey it. If we're going to be the church, we have to know God's Word and we have to fall in love with God again. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. And God, thank you for getting week one off my back. But Lord, we're, uh, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your special revelation to us. That because of the fact that, that you revealed your son to us, that you revealed your words to us, your direction to us, your wisdom to us, your poetry to us, your heart to us, God. Because of the fact that you revealed those things, we have a paved path, pathway towards eternity with you. Father, I pray we would fall in love with Scripture again, but Father, I also pray that as we understand and read your special revelation, that we would be willing then to have conversations with other people who don't yet know you, who the Bible intimidates, who your word, it has been mystified by people, that people love writing about it and thinking about it, that oftentimes we simply forget that this is just a story about your son and how he came to save our lives. 
God, I pray we would fall in love with that. I pray we would fall in love with your word that you gave to us and that as we fall in love with it, that our lives would be transformed to such a way that we would have, we could have, we could do nothing else but share about your son, but share about your word. Because Father, we recognize there's people actively going to hell and you've given us an instruction manual with how to fix it. Lord, I pray we would take that seriously. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you all for being here with us. You guys have a good Sunday. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.